I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 14. We're continuing in our study in the parables, these lessons that Luke has written to his friend Theophilus and how to grow in the knowledge of the Lord and as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Our message is discipleship at what cost. We're talking about commitment and involvement as we've been working through different of the parables and we've been working on our relationship to the Lord as our Father. We've talked about loving and being willing then to expend ourselves for others. We've been focusing on prayers these past weeks. We are coming to a passage in Luke 14 dealing with commitment, involvement. There's a big difference between involvement and commitment. Involvement, a participant. Commitment, usually sacrifice or investment. Think of work for a moment. Tomorrow morning, many of you will head off to work. We work at a company or we work maybe in a small company, store, where you are involved Monday through Friday, perhaps, working, giving yourself to it. The owner may have mortgaged his home, may have put all of their life savings into it, and will put in again as many hours as we do and never goes home from it at night. They're committed. If we watch sports and watch professional football, I enjoy golf. On Saturdays, I enjoy watching football. But as we watch football and we cheer on, this year I've been doing a lot of cheering for since I've been living in Florida, and they're number one. I watch every Saturday evening the Florida Gators and... Uh, I was joking a little bit that I've shifted allegiance. I'm from the University of Minnesota in college. I should be rooting for the Gophers. I do watch their score all the time, but the Gophers. (laughs) Even when I was a student there, just think about the Golden Gophers compared to the Florida Gators. I mean, there's an image there that's different. Watching those games, 60, 70... At Penn State, where we lived, 110,000 people involved in the game. People who need to exercise. (laughs) Watching 22 players who need to rest. Okay? (laughs) And so, involvement versus commitment. And it's that way in all walks of life. Do you know the difference between involvement and commitment? About the last few weeks, I've decided to eat yogurt for breakfast. And so we buy these little things of Dan and yogurt. And I brought one into the office and had a yogurt. Uh, I'm at the point now where I can get halfway through a yogurt. Okay. (laughs) And um, it must be good for you because anything that tastes that bad has got to be good for you. Just... But, but So I'm working on, on, on eating yogurt. Yesterday, I had to run on down to Florida and come on back. I drove Lucy down there. We both couldn't be there. My oldest granddaughter's getting baptized, seven years old. And so Lucy, she wanted Nana and Papa to come. And well, uh, Nana's there. And so we went down. But when we also got down there, we went out for breakfast because some other relatives, not for this occasion, but for uh, other, they, they were all in Florida. And so we got together about 12 of us. And the only time we could all get together was about 10 o'clock yesterday morning at a restaurant. And so we went for breakfast. I did not have yogurt. Okay. <laughs> I ordered the unhealthy. I had, I had ham and eggs. 
and hash browns and pancakes and juice and I had a lot more actually, okay? But I had ham and eggs. Do you know the difference between involvement and commitment? If you look at that ham and egg breakfast, the chicken was involved. The pig was committed, okay? That's the difference. Jesus had a group of followers who were involved. Many of these people followed him because of his teaching, some because of his healings, some by the fact that they had heard that Messiah was coming and this was he. And he called himself the Son of Man, the Messiah. I'm going to go back for just a moment to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, and we are in chapter 14, but to put everything in context for just a moment, you have to see what is transpiring. And in Luke chapter 9, in verse 51, something's going to take place, and Luke will announce it. And then the rest of the Gospel of Luke follows after this. Toward the end of his ministry, Luke 9, 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension... He was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead to the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And as he's moving on to Jerusalem now, heading to the cross at the end of his ministry, verse 57, and as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Life will be difficult. He said to another, follow me. But this man responded, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said, allow the dead, spiritually dead, to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also, a third said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. All these are laying priorities of other things more important. And Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. As we come now to the parable in Luke chapter 14, and if you'll go there for a moment... We see, as we look at Luke 14, the setting now. And we read, now large crowds, verse 25, were going along with him. And he turned, and he's going to say to them, the setting of the parables, there will be two short parables in Luke 14, verses 25 to 33. And the parables begin in verse 28. Are during the time that large crowds accompanied Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, As we said, the people saw in him mistakenly, they are thinking that Jesus will be the earthly ruler now, and they want to have a part of that rulership. But in Jerusalem, he is not going to ascend a throne. He's on his way to die. He will ascend a cross instead. Jesus intended to impress now on the people their need to examine their resolve to follow him. These followers are going to learn the high cost of discipleship before they throw in their lot with him. You and I have have had the thrill, most of us in this room have experienced, the joy. At first there wasn't joy, there was the realization that I am a sinner. Used to think that we will live our lives the way we want to, doing our best upon death, 
we finally have to face the decision and we'll stand before Peter at the gate and he will hold scales in his hands, a balance, our good works weighing those evil works and see which way the scales tip. I've never figured out why Peter's always the one who does all the weighing of the balances. But we always taught one day we'll stand before Peter and then be judged before we get into the gate. The Bible doesn't teach anything like that. There's no gate at which we will be judged. We were judged at a cross. Jesus paid a penalty of our sins there on a cross. And in our lives there is a decision. A time when you and I were told we sent him. I sent him. You individually, we sent him to the cross. We were told, you're a sinner. But Christ loved you and paid the penalty for your sin. And all those works of righteousnesses that we thought we would do, they are what? Filthy what? Rags. Putrefying band-aids, grave cloths. And as we try to live that way, our wages, the wages of sin is what? Eternal separation, death from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. God, you see, commended his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we, since all have sinned and come short of the glory of God... Whosoever now will call upon the name of the Lord shall be. We came. And like John Bunyan says in Pilgrim Progress, that weight of sin, that backpack, that burden of sin, we took off. He took off. We gave it to him. He carried. He took our sins. I exchanged my sin for salvation. And he gave you this gift. For those of you who have never received it, he's offering it to you today. Someone says, I'm too great of a sinner. (laughs) He only saves sinners. And he says, I will give you this gift. And we received it. Folks, salvation was free. It was a gift. Salvation was free. It was not cheap. It cost the Son of God everything. But he would do it out of love for you and me. We're saved. We're children of God. We follow him. He is now Lord of our life. And as you and I walk through this life and now live for him, we have been left here to be his mouthpieces, his instruments, his ambassadors, his disciples. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's what you and I are doing. All across this part of North Carolina, we are to be discipling folks for Jesus Christ. And when we do that, as a disciple, they crucified Christ. Life will not be easy for his disciples either. And he wants us to understand that. He is not trying to diminish the followers, but he says, mine pay a high price in this life. 
And he wants us to realize that. And so he has a lesson for us today. And the lesson is this, that you need to be a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what the parable says. And that's what he writes to Theophilus, Dr. Luke does, and says, discipleship. After you've become a child of God, discipleship, following Christ, entails a cost. Dr. Dwight Pentecost wrote a book years ago, and I was one, a student of his, and I purchased the book at the time. It was called Words and Works of Jesus Christ. Dr. Pentecost writes on page 254, In the light of Jesus' own revelation concerning his approaching death, it was evident that one must pay a costly price to become his disciple. Christ made high demands on those who would be his true disciples. The gospel revealed three stages in the development of a disciple. Number one, multitudes were attracted to Jesus Christ to hear his words and see his works. They came out of curiosity. Number two, from among the curious, there were many who came to put their faith in Jesus Christ. We would call such ones convinced. Some came out of curiosity. Some became convinced. But now Christ demanded that the convinced make a commitment. We will call these the committed. From curious to convinced to committed. What does our Savior, my Lord, ask of me, of each of us as we sit here? I want you to notice in this passage of Scripture from verses 25 down through 33 that the Lord is going to ask of us four requirements. He will require of us, first of all, in verse 25 and 26, dedication. Let's look at this in verse 25, dedication, and follow along as I read. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So you read this, you, you, the first time, first time I ever read the New Testament, I was reading this after I'd been saved. I'm going, I can't believe what I'm reading. This is, this is the huge wow. It's like, wow. People will come into our church and you may have a worker that you work with. And you're witnessing, sharing the gospel, the good news with them. And as you talk with them, and there are difficulties in their marriage, in their life, and you want them to understand Christ is the answer for their difficulties. They are experiencing such great discouragement, and the only hope they have is in the Lord. And you want to lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ. And we tell them if you receive Christ, things will be different. Remember, we don't tell them everything will be okay. And we never tell them it will be easy. It will be better. It will be different. And God will work in your life. And along the way, there may be some hardships, 
But with God and his spirit in you, he promises to go through them with you. Amen? And I'll take you through those fires and those trials. I'll be with you. And with God there, we can come out safely on the other side. In between, some singeing, some deep valleys. But with God on our side. Jesus now is emphasizing discipleship can be difficult. But he comes along with this expression. If anyone comes to me and does not hate... I want you to see, first of all, that dedication to Jesus Christ involves giving him priority in your life. Notice this first lesson. It involves giving him priority. And a key word here is that word priority. You see, literally hating one's family would be a violation of the law. Do you remember? We referenced Leviticus 19. And remember there was, we saw in some of the passages, that what? What is the greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, mind, strength, etc. And the second commandment, Leviticus 19.18, is what? Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. And so you need to love others. Remember we said it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about God and others in doing that. So how now can he say to hate? Well, perhaps it's because we put a different connotation with it. When we read the word hate, you and I think of terms like detest, despise, want nothing to do with, abhor, just aberrant, get away from us. That's not what it meant in the Jewish economy. At this time, when Jesus would use that expression, to hate meant to assign something a different level of priority. It wasn't associated with feelings. It was a matter of the mind and of choice. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. doesn't mean he despised, didn't like the one, and preferred the other over him. I'm making a choice into working this plan out with this as priority and that is secondary. In the relegation of from first to second, that term means then to hate in their culture. And that was the expression. And what Jesus is saying then is, He is to be priority in your decision-making in life, in your dedication. I will assign Christ the highest priority in my life. And with that in mind, dedication to Jesus Christ involves giving him then the loyalty of your life. If he is priority, that then brings with it loyalty. Notice secondly on this as we talk about that. Father and mother, wife. Children, brothers, sisters, yea, his own life. It involves then giving him those things that sometimes we make as we dedicate our lives, we do sometimes hold back. Well, my children, and we do that. And we make decisions then based on, well, what do the kids want? Or what does... I don't want to offend a co I don't want to offend a sister. I'm, I don't want to talk with her about the things. I don't want them to be upset. And it's like, that is not helping them at the greatest, the highest loyalty, the greatest priority. Jesus says is him, his will. And so it's a dedication then to the will of God, which takes us to the second point. He goes right under the next verse underneath this. Verse 26, he cannot be my disciple unless. Verse 27, cannot be my disciple unless what? 
There's a sense of requirement of understanding. Denial. First dedication, but then denial. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A second qualification that Jesus stressed was that one must carry his own cross and follow him. Now, in order to appreciate this, this is sort of a shortened version of something Christ has been speaking about before. Go back again to Luke 9 for just a moment, please. We have to go back one more time to Luke chapter 9 in verse 23 in Luke 9. Jesus on another occasion talking about suffering many things and difficulty. In verse 23 of Luke 9, he was saying to them all, if any man wishes to come after me, same teaching, but on a different occasion, he must deny himself, notice, and take up his cross daily and follow me. Somehow denying is associated with cross-bearing. Listen as I go a little further. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever will come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now back to Luke chapter 14. Whoever does not carry his own cross. So you and I then need to ask the question, what does cross-bearing mean? Does it literally have the idea that you and I could face martyrdom and die on a cross like Christ? Well, during over the years of church history, some have. And that could happen. I dare say it probably won't happen to anyone here. It's not probably in any of our foreseeable futures, no matter how dedicated to Christ we are. But he's using that. What does he mean? And I've heard folks say, well, figuratively, each of us has a cross to bear throughout our life. Someone say, well, that job I have, that's my cross to bear. God has given me this child, that's my cross to bear. He's given me this husband, this has happened, this accident has taken place in my life, this is now my cross to bear. That's not what the expression means, though we use it that way in a figurative sense. No, there was something very important going on in that culture. You see, in the time that Jesus lived, and Rome now was controlling everything in its empire, If you ever rebelled against Rome, committed the crime of treason, there was a death reserved for you, and that was the death by crucifixion. If a murder had taken place or something else had happened, they would put you to death by other means. But if there was a crime against the government and you were guilty of high treason, you would then be taken out before all and nailed to a cross. The Romans had picked that up from other cultures. In the process of doing that, they did some things. They would take the cross beam. And you remember that piece? They didn't drag. I've seen pictures and paintings where they showed Jesus walking the Via Dolorosa, the way to the cross, pulling the whole cross. They didn't do that. What they did is they would take the cross beam, the cross piece, called the patabellum. 
And the prisoner, the criminal, would put a patabellum on his shoulders and they would tie his arms to it. He would be forced to walk through the streets then, carrying the patabellum around his neck. He would wear a sign. And on that sign, they would put his crime of treason against the government. In Jesus' case, he not only had that, but then they nailed it above his head on the cross, claiming to be king, king of the Jews, the crime of high treason, crucifixion. The purpose of carrying that patabellum through the streets was to show everyone you need to submit to Rome. Anybody who doesn't, This is the fate that awaits you. If you rebel and in your will, you assert your will, then this will be the outcome for you. And they used it as a deterrent against high treason. So that cross-bearing, bearing his cross, became a public or a used expression to get across the idea to submit then to the authority or rule. This person now is bowing down. He now has to submit, bowing down before the Roman authority that he used to rebel against. And so when Jesus uses the expression, take up his cross in my life, in your life, before we came to Christ Who really dominated your life? Self. And that's why he says, must deny him? Self. Take up his cross, submit to his authority, and follow him. We prayed that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Say it with me. Thy will be done. Remember that? That's taking up the cross. It is now denying self. Therefore, what Jesus was emphasizing is this, that personal desires must be placed in obedience to God. And living for Christ at any cost may invite peril. But Lord, I'm willing to do that. Thy will be done is what we are saying. How far are you and I willing to follow? A cross? How much are we willing to sacrifice? How much is Christ worth to you? So he says, are you committed this morning? As you sit here, are you dedicated in that sense? Are you practicing denial of self? Thy will be done, Lord. What you want takes priority in my life. And then you make a decision. Why? Is this worth it? Verse 28. Notice with me. Discipleship requires us making a conscientious, willful decision now. And as we look in verse 28, Jesus is going to tell two parables. There are two very brief parables here. Actually, some of the shortest. One is taken from the agricultural world, one from the political scene, but both of them are going to bring home the same point. One about a tower builder, one about a warring king. The principle of both of these parables then is before you say yes or no, you better think, is it worth it? For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower... 
does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. We're going to talk about this first parable here about the tower builder, asking the question, are you willing to pay a cost? I want you to see an image of a tower in Jesus' day. When you and I think of a tower, we think of castles in medieval ages, and we think of towers where, you know, that you went in, on the corners of the building would be these towers to defend the building. The tower that's used here is something very common in Jesus' day. This, this is a vineyard. This is a, a vineyard that you would see all over the lands that Galilee, where Jesus is, is now making his way through and heading on to Jerusalem. And you'll see a stone structure there in the middle of a vineyard. Sometimes where the flocks were, sometimes in the middle of a vineyard. Let's show another image that even shows you a close-up. This looks like a stone hut. It's called a tower. Matter of fact, God is called our tower. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, it says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. The towers were used in the vineyards or out with the flocks, or they were used and you would go in there in a storm. You would keep your implements in there. In the heat of the day, when you would work in the morning and then in the later afternoon hours, but in the heat of the day, you would go in there for protection. If there happened to be robbers or bandits or some rude people in the area, you could go in there for safety. You and I go to the towers, the tower of the Lord. The name of the Lord is our tower. Jesus, it says, was a carpenter's son. And as we talk about Joseph and his occupation of being a carpenter, the term that is used, and in one of the most recent journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, a writer published an article talking about the term carpenter. When you and I hear the term and read it in Scripture, carpenter, we think of a woodworker. I marvel at those of you who can do woodworking. Burgraff here can do none of that. I can do some mechanics work. I cannot do... I'm not good. I can't pound a board together and make it straight. I butt the ends together, and then I learn from others. You've got to overlap. And do. It's just beyond me, okay? And so I'll read about it and admire those who can do it. Jesus was not only a carpenter, but the term that says carpenter's son is the word that literally means builder. He worked with wood. He would have been the skilled woodworksman of the days. He also worked with metals and would have understand metals well. And he also worked with stone. And undoubtedly, there were many occasions growing up when he would have went with James and he would have went with his father Joseph and others, his stepfather as it were, and they would have gone out and they would have taken bids or quotes or whatever and they would have quoted out building these. And he would have done that. So he uses things that he is very familiar with and they're familiar with. And in the paradigm in which Jesus lived, there was this, or the, in the time when there was this paradigm that we share with you called shame and honor. Jewish culture did everything, does everything today yet, based on shame and honor, keeping honor and shame at bay. 
So do it for honor. And in this case, he's talking about, think how shameful, how embarrassing. Think what reproach it would bring upon someone in how they conduct their affairs if they started, went out, set about, and couldn't complete something. More than that, it can get really serious if you go to the second parable, a contemplative king thinking about what king, verse 31, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000, or else while the other is still afar away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. As you think about this then, and we think about a king, and he's contemplating a battle, and he's thinking in his mind, can I, do I have the wherewithal to succeed in this? The idea is, as you think about this, and what king would do this, what would you go to war? Both of these parables drive home a lesson for us, a central truth that I want you to see. And the central truth is this. It's a really a rhetorical question. Notice the central truth. And I put it this way, foolish would be any thought of being a disciple without assessing the impact on one's life. Jesus Christ offers to you and me salvation freely, and we receive it. But then we are to realize that following him and obeying this new master after we are saved and living for him day in and day out is going to bring a cost with us. And our lives are called to be changed. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we read principles in the word of God, and through the power of the Spirit, we desire then to be conformed to that. Asking God, convict me, conform me, change me. And as you do, people watch We live this life. You are observed. God wants us to go all the way to being conformed to the image of his son. That's what discipleship is about. Teaching them to observe what? All things whatsoever I have commanded you. And that's what it says in Matthew 28. Go ye therefore and make disciples. First step then is baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them then. Discipling them. His commands. And as you and I do that, in his commentary on the book of Romans, Dr. Elva McLean, who for years was the president of Grace Theological Seminary, has something very, easy, very interesting to say, and it takes away this whole idea of though salvation was free, it was not cheap. When you and I became children of God, when we got saved... God imputed righteousness to us. He tells us, be ye now what? Holy, for I am holy. And he wants us to live holy lives. To be holy, to live holy. The word for holy is the Greek word hagios. H-A-G-I-O-S. Say it with me. Hagios. Again, hagios. Now you know some Greek. Hagias is the word for holy. It's the same word for dedicated. 
It's the same word for consecrate. It means to set apart to God. It's used then for things that are pronounced, but when it's used for people, the Greek word hagios is translated saint. Paul writes to the Romans and says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a bond slave, by verse 7, unto the saints that be at Rome. Listen to this. A Christian whose life is not what it ought to be often gives the excuse, I don't pretend to be a saint. McLean writes, it doesn't matter what you pretend to be. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. It's not an evidence of humility to refuse to be called a saint. It is not humility to refuse that take that name that God has given us, but instead it is unbelief masquerading in the role of humility. Does the world expect anything of a sinner? Not a thing. Does the world expect anything of a saint? It certainly does. If a man or a woman that has taken this position falls, every man will jeer at him saying, there is your saint. To accept the position of saint demands living in conformity with the position. Those who do not want to take that position know that they do not intend to live in accordance with that position, and therefore they refuse to take it. God never goes to a sinner and tells him to try to attain to sainthood. He picks you and I out of the mud and says, you are a saint. We are not making believe. We are holy and must live in accordance with our position. This is never attained by striving, but by taking possession of sainthood, remembering our position, and living in accordance with it. You and I are what? Saints. God would say to us, now act like it. Live like it. Among those co-workers, among those neighbors, with that lab partner at the university or in high school, among your relatives at Thanksgiving, you and I, making a conscious decision every day, will I show forth Christ? That's what he's asking of you and me. Else, to this world, we're like a half-built tower, or it makes it look as if the army of Christ is out in a battle. Where are the troops? But there's something else. And that is, if you're going to follow Christ, committed to him, there is determination. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Folks, you could not buy your salvation even if we tried. God offers it to you and me as a gift. We don't work for it. We don't buy it. And people have tried. He's not saying in this passage at all, give me your money and I will give you. No, it's nothing like that. You could give all your money away, and there were some of the disciples who did do that. And they gave up it all, and they followed him. They left all. James and John and Peter and Andrew walked away from a fishing business, followed him. There were others he commanded, sell all you have and follow me, and they couldn't do it. What the Lord is saying in this, it isn't your possessions that I covet. I'd rather have your heart. And if a person's willing to part from their possession, we put a lot of stock in what we drive, what we wear, where we live, and the income we have. If you would be willing to give that all up for Christ, then he says, I'm not asking you to do that. I just want to know if there's a heart that would say, you're worth more than all of that. Do we live like that? 
The question for all of us, discipleship at what cost? Dr. Michael Loftus writes three things. Every human love, every human ambition, every human possession. Dr. Klein Snodgrass, I hear some snickers. That's a real name, okay? (laughs) Gives us a lesson in his parables, and he says, as we've been looking at the parables, he writes... How does being a disciple of Jesus Christ impact one's life? And he lists five things. Now that you're saved, following Christ challenges allegiances with family, loving father and mother, brother, sister, in a different level than you do with the Lord. It requires the willingness even to die for Christ. He writes, it shifts the focus off self-centeredness. It places one at the disposal of another. He is now my Lord. And it changes the way one handles financial resources. They are his. That's why I don't give a tithe. We give much more. Sometimes the quarter, sometimes the half. It's all his. My life is his. My time is his. My kids. My mate. My job, my home, my car. My car is dented. The doors ding. It's his. It's his. Say this out loud with me. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily, I surrender Oh, Father, thank you for the time in the Word of God. 